Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here's your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2. Today, we're speaking with Demetra Brown, Senior Director at the Dallas Entrepreneur Center, the DEC Network. Welcome, Demetra. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to hear your story. Let's start with why did you get into entrepreneurship-led economic development? Yeah, I'm excited to share. Um, it, it's pretty interesting, right? During the, the pandemic summer of 2020, a few months prior to that, I was actually furloughed. Um, at that time, I was working for a economic development organization that was focused on the work, workforce side of things. Um, and we had hit this really interesting point where the nature of our work was about to change naturally, right, with the pandemic. Um, we were a really place-based, uh, on-the-ground upskilling organization that was building partnerships and really helping to forge uh, closing the skills gap. And we focused on working with employers who were creating, you know, in-demand jobs and then working with individuals from underserved communities who were looking to develop the skills they needed to tap into living wage jobs. Um, So with that background in mind, when our organization needed to shift, I knew that I wanted to stay extremely localized in my work. I love Dallas, which is where I'm based. Um, and particularly, I have a, a heart for Southern Dallas and wanted to figure out how can I continue to serve in that capacity. And so I learned of an opportunity uh, with the DEC network that would allow me to keep a focus on Southern Dallas. And, and the reason that's so important is because just historically, Southern Dallas has been one of those areas in our community that has been historically disinvested in. Um, and so for me, I really wanted to figure out how could I stay connected to my passion of you know, dealing with things around economic opportunity. How do we continue to reduce the barriers that impact individuals who are looking to build economic mobility and, of course, build wealth? And so entrepreneurship is obviously an amazing tool for building assets and and building wealth within families. And so that was my why of what brought me to the work. Number one, the focus on Dallas and Southern Dallas, um, and as well as diverse communities, but then the economic element of it, right? Creating opportunity through entrepreneurship as a tool. Do you have any small business experience in your family where your parents, small businesses, did you see aunts and uncles growing up? What is your motivation to focus on entrepreneurship versus there's so many other pillars around helping uh, economic development, workforce development, business attraction, job creation? What was the, the attraction to entrepreneurship? You know, the funny thing about that is one of the things I've realized in just, you know, the last year and a half of working with the DEC network is I think many of us, depending on our backgrounds and the communities we come from, we we haven't thought of some of the things we've seen family members do as entrepreneurship, right? So I, I come from a rural environment in North Louisiana where you have family members who own land, who own cattle, and who uh, take that and turn that into a business and create not only wealth for their families, but also income. So growing up, I never saw that as entrepreneurship, um, but having been in the space and understanding just a little bit of the dynamics of what it's like to be a business owner and how sometimes the story that gets told leaves a lot of folks out. And we we have these very narrow views of who is an entrepreneur sometimes, depending on that. Um, I've learned to just open my scope and really realize what you know my grandfather and grandmother were doing in rural Louisiana um, with owning land and being able to steward that land to create income for their families as a form of entrepreneurship. And so that's a part of the message uh, that I'm kind of looking to spearhead and tell with a lot of the work we're doing here in Dallas is that um, essentially it's it's not about these stereotypical images of, of entrepreneurship, right? It's about the practical implementation of it on the ground in communities and that it doesn't have to look a certain type of way. 
Absolutely. I'm nodding my head here because I look at entrepreneurship also more in terms of wealth creation. I sometimes give talks at the local university where I talk about why you should be in entrepreneurship. And I tell people the primary reason is for wealth creation. If you're not getting rich and if you're getting poor, entrepreneurship is not for you because Shark Tank and all these other uh, other shows kind of make it seem like it's really cool to start a business. Ultimately, it's about putting food on the table. And when we talk to entrepreneurs, we need to give them a direct path from an idea to making money on that idea. And a lot of it is very tactical. Is there a need for your product in the marketplace? Do you have capital to go make goods and services to be able to sell and make money? Do you have uh, experience with hiring employees and growing your business? Very tactical, tangible steps that sometimes get lost in the, the media hype around Shark Tank and the hockey stick growth. Do you have any programs that you can talk to at the DEC network that helps entrepreneurs uh, at various stages of starting a business? Yeah, and David, I love uh, the point you just made just about the, you know, the romanticization of entrepreneurship, right? Um, and you use the word tactical. And so I, I think a lot of what we do here at the, at the DEC Network is around the tactical elements. Uh, for example, um, when the pandemic happened, we launched a fund, the Revive Fund, and we learned a ton from that, right? Naturally, a lot of folks learn things from PPP and just the way that those resources were distributed. But even in seeing close up what it really looks like for someone to apply for capital um, and understanding a lot of the things that go into that before you get to that point really informed the way we pro approached programming post-pandemic. We wanted to put together things that were really practical and that brought in subject matter experts. So one of the things that we've developed, and this really falls under one of our pillars as an organization, which is education. And so we developed three signature programs, and these programs were designed to meet entrepreneurs at various stages of their entrepreneurial journey. And so we started with a, um, an ideation phase program called Big Idea Dallas, which you mentioned you know, really understanding, number one, is there a market for your business, right? You know, who is the potential customer? And so we we created a, a an intensive boot camp to really just spend time at that point of the process, right? Not to think about raising capital, but to really think about the market and understanding, like, are you creating something that you're going to be able to sell ultimately before you dive all in? But then in addition to that, as another example, we created a program called Financial Readiness. Um, I've had the opportunity to work alongside many of our ecosystem partners here locally in Dallas to, to do a grant program through our shared initiative called Build, um, which is an ecosystem building collaborative. And we were able to see what does it look like for an individual to apply for a small business grant? And when you ask for certain types of information, typically do small businesses have that in hand? And we learned that in many instances, they don't. And so we developed a program called Financial Readiness here at the DC Network, where we're all about taking you through not the five C's of capital, right? Like that conversation is uh, <laughs> it's probably one of the more, the more boring presentations of how to uh, get capital ready and financially ready, but really thinking about how we bring in experts from our community to talk about these things in this very practical way and align it with strategy. So, you know, one of the things we've been able to do is really look at our program portfolio, understand what the needs are, and also connect with entrepreneurs in that design phase to create something that meets them where they are. But in addition to that, we have a mentoring program. So we understand everyone does not need to be in a kind of shared learning environment. I don't need to go through this seven to eight week structured learning platform or uh, program. What I need is a little bit more of a one-to-one -one individualized approach. And so our mentoring program has really allowed us to do that. 
And the way that we facilitate that program is in two, you know, two different mediums. One, maybe you're not looking for a commitment. You're looking for some really, you know, topic oriented advice on a particular subject that's, you know, really relevant to you at this point in your business. And what we do is we connect you to subject matter experts for office hours. So you don't have to be committed in a program or anything of that nature. You just want to be able to have those touch points to relevant topics. But then we do do the more intimate matchmaking where we take individuals who have, a, you know, successfully established a small business in the past, or perhaps they have um, a certain level of subject matter expertise in, a, in an area, and they actually want to work along, walk alongside entrepreneurs. And so that's another approach that we've taken. But one of the things that I think we're really known for here at the DC Network and that we've done for a really long time is that is being a convener of the ecosystem. We really want to create the space and place for entrepreneurs to collide, you know, with one another, with investors and other uh, folks in the ecosystem. So we're known for putting together things like Dallas Startup Week. Um, we're about to have State of Entrepreneurship, um, which is kind of like our, our Super Bowl event where we really highlight folks in our community, in our local ecosystem that are doing amazing things. But those events matter um, because it does, again, provide that space and place for folks to collide. So that's just a little bit of kind of what we got going on. I have a couple of questions about it. One, do you offer capital with any of these programs? So one of the things that we started doing, and again, um, the pandemic um, was such a teacher for us. I think we learned a lot about ourselves and our organization. But when we were launching these programs, especially the education-based ones, we were like, to, to focus on entrepreneurs of color, which is, which is my focus, um, we have to figure out ways to get funding in the hands of these entrepreneurs. So we've tried a, a multitude of things. For example, we've done uh, pitch competitions as a walk alongside our programs as a way to get funding in folks' hands. We've done micro grants as another way to do it where, hey, hit these milestones and you tap into these level of funds. And so those are the two ways that we've done it here recently. But one of the things I'm always looking to figure out is how do we make it more of a staple Um as a program designer, I'm all about dual interventions. You know, I don't want to approach a problem for the individual that we're looking to serve from one dimension. I understand that often the problem is more, it's more multifaceted than that. There's a couple of different pieces there. We can talk about business strategy, but if you have an urgent need where you need financial relief, that is not going to be sufficient. And so one of the things we're challenging ourselves on internally as an organization is how do we create more dual interventions where funding is, is the second piece of the equation. Because small businesses, especially underrepresented entrepreneurs, BIPOC founders, et cetera, have a really difficult time raising capital. And that's because when you look at the traditional ways in which people evaluate creditworthiness or repayability, it is looking at very legacy metrics like credit score or who do you know? Do you have a trusted banker, uh, et cetera, that immediately marginalizes small businesses of color and other um, minority communities. So we at Economic Impact Catalyst have been asking ourselves, what are these alternate access to capital mechanisms that we can introduce our clients to, to say, yes, repayability is one way of looking at uh, investments coming into the community. Because if I know that you can pay me back, I'll give you as much money as uh, you want, because I know I'm going to make a return on the money. But for a lot of underrepresented entrepreneurs, they need somebody to take a chance on them. And so, and so they might not have a friends and family round. They might not have a trusted banker. They might not come from a position of wealth. And in this country, the best way to create wealth is to already have some. <laughs> if you're rich, it's very easy to become rich. If you're poor, it's very hard to become rich. And vice versa, if it's rich, it's very hard to become poor. 
So we need to kind of break some of these barriers. And I look at institutions like the DEC network to say, you have direct access to small businesses. You also have direct access to technical assistance. If you can find ability to also bring in cash or some kind of capital assistance, you can actually uh, create a lot more value for the entrepreneurs walking through your doors because that's one place where entrepreneurs traditionally have, have struggled. No, I love that. Um, you made a brilliant point, David. You know, the, the interesting thing is when we think about individuals from marginalized communities or where there has been disinvestment because of, you know, historical policies that we don't have to get into. It's it's funny that two of the biggest factors in you being able to access capital, at least in a debt perspective, is collateral, which you have been prevented from participating in, right? Um, and then capital, already having, you know, these types of assets. So it, it's, it's a little bit of irony there. And that's why one of the things that I'm interested in for us to explore as an organization is how do we help some of those institutions in our community who have, uh, you know, who are designed to support individuals from LMI backgrounds uh, be better positioned from a capacity standpoint to take some take on some additional risk, quote unquote. Um, but really, we're looking at things like, you know, loan loss reserves. You know, I know we're going to get into this when we think about what is the role that philanthropy can play. How do we build up some of that so we can start to look at these underwriting processes and how we might weigh, um, weigh certain things higher than others, such as character, right? Um, and such as the ability for the business to generate revenue. And so, you know, there's things like revenue-based financing that are happening a little bit more in the, in the country. But one of the things I, I'm deeply interested in, especially for us locally, is how do we innovate? And not innovate in the, in the sexy way that is typically spoken of, but like literally just trying things in a different manner, right? You know, breaking the cycle of kind of doing it the way we've always done it, but leveraging these unique resources within our community to enable the institutions that have the expertise to do it, to have more flexibility to do it. So th those are things we're definitely interested in here. Um, which, again, constantly challenging ourselves, like how do we couple funding with this work? Because you can't just ignore the immediate need. So that's an excellent point. I'm going to give you a, a peek into, so we're writing a white paper on, on alternate access to capital. And you talked about innovation. So I'm putting this hypothesis in there. I'm going to give you a sneak preview. We're going to publish this in the next few weeks. So this is my brilliant idea. And I'm, it's not a unique, all ideas somebody already thought about. So I'm not laying claim to that, but this is my take on it. You know, you talk about loan loss reserves. I'm going to go one step further and say, when it comes to economic development, they look at entrepreneurship as uh, somebody who's creating a job, right? But in parallel, they also look at homelessness, uh, looking at childcare, looking at housing. I'm saying because economic development looks at the entire uh, portfolio at the end of the day, right? What if you said, I'm willing to not just have loan loss reserves, but instead of creating a safety net on one end, I'm going to actually invest heavily in small businesses and be okay with some of them not paying back as long as the money remains in the economy. So as long as they're spending it in the economy and you create a marketplace where they can buy from their local developer or go to their local lawyer or local accountant and the money stays in the, in the community, I should be okay with saying I'm willing to have a bigger set of losses because anyway, that money would have had to go, go back into creating uh, a safety net of sorts on the other end if the business failed. What mm -hmm. if I actually gave the business the money in the first place and allowed them to actually take a bigger chance with a bigger pool of money? Because there is this really fixed mindset when it comes to investing, repayability, right? I think that that's a very, very low bar. Uh, I think you can do better than repayability and say, you know what, let's actually take a chance and knowing that there will be bigger losses, but those losses are not true economic losses. 
because that money it creates a circular economy and it stays in the economy and it's still creating economic activity it's the same thing as giving a tax break or a tax holiday or all these other things that we do net net we will actually create better economic activity by by investing or betting or more on more small business ideas so that's my innovation that you're talking about let's be innovative let's do something different uh mindset shift yeah yeah along with things like character based lending right like for example if somebody is using quickbooks that's a much better uh i that's a much much better indicator of them understanding the me- the mechanics of business and understanding cash flow and understanding unit cost etc versus like you said you know do they come from wealth or do they have assets or do they have collateral knowing how to use quickbooks or already having quickbooks to run their business is a much better indication of the health of the business because they understand what it takes to actually run your monthly pnl and and so attaching their funding to their quickbooks which actually some of the you know the lot of the innovation in lending is happening in the in the online space a lot yes, of fintech right? yeah yeah fintech a lot of the fintech uh, lenders already require you to have a api that automatically connects with quickbooks they don't even need bank statements anymore they just need a quick api into your quickbooks and they'll give you money because you have an algorithm that basically looks at your quickbooks <laughs> yes right so that that's that's fascinating to me and i think um hearing hearing you talk about something like that it makes me think of the biggest learning from the pandemic is we have to be willing to meet business owners where they are use the word fixed like we have these very fixed mindsets on the way that certain things should work and they typically impede our ability to innovate right because we we kind of have this stair stepped approach of you have to have this before you can even think about this and even if you think about even on you know we're talking in the you know the small business and maybe even the micro business side it seems like those fixed mindsets are more steeped in that side of the conversation whereas in certain parts of the ecosystem there's a little bit more flexibility to take some losses so i think you have a really good point <laughs> about that yeah, so we'll see uh, i i will send you the white paper once it comes out uh so let, let's switch to uh the idea around the role of philanthropy in economic development I have uh, some opinion some of my mentors like Pam Lewis was actually one of the guests on this podcast in season 1 um also have some opinions on that but would love to hear your take on it and also your experiences with uh with JP Morgan Chase and other um other big philanthropies in the space. Yeah, I think for me one of the things that I I think many of us can recognize when we look at philanthropy on the local level in particular is that when the pandemic happened and then you couple that with the racial awakening of the summer of 2020 we saw the philanthropic community step in to support organizations that support small businesses as well as to support small businesses directly right we saw that in a in a way that i think has been unprecedented so that lets me know right like our philanthropic community has the appetite and and a little bit of the willingness i think where the opportunity is though is on folks like you and myself to help tell the story about how their dollars the philanthropic dollars can expand the capacity of some of the organizations such as you know CDFIs um to be able to do some of those loan programs or restructure some of those things in the manner that you and I just spoke to um and so one of the ways that I believe that philanthropy has shown up and can continue to show up is in allowing the flexibility for innovation to take place right i think there's some institutions and if you look at philanthropy they've shown a willingness to try to figure out new ways to kind of solve for some of these age old pro- uh, problems like if you look at the racial wealth gap 
and particularly in the black community, it is not closing, right? Like it, it, we, we have not made a monumental amount of progress. So with that being said, when, when I think about the role, I'm like, this is the, the, the spectrum of our um, economic development community that can seed some of the innovation. So for me, uh, JP Morgan Chase here locally um, and their philanthropy team has been a huge investor in a lot of our ecosystem building efforts. And even when we think about the notion of this, this phrase ecosystem building, it is still relatively new in the philanthropy community. And so when you think about an organization like a JP Morgan Chase, who is doing this all over the country, not just in Dallas, um, their ability to support us in trying to figure out how do organizations like the DEC network in partnership with the city of Dallas and partnership with you know, uh, CDFI organizations like Lift Fund, as well as BCL of Texas, how do we come together, use our shared resources along with some of that, you know, flexible funding to figure out new ways of addressing some of these age-old issues. So for me, you know, not to simplify it, but philanthropy, I think, is well positioned to invest in a lot of the innovation um, because they've been doing it, right? They have a track record of doing it. Talking about philanthropy, I think we're on the same page. Uh, I'll tell you, where in where I try to highlight the role of philanthropy versus the role of economic development. It's around this uh, age-old concept of incentivization in economics. What incentives do all the parties have? And traditionally, what's happened with philanthropy is philanthropy tries to fill in the gaps that economic development leaves. And there, philanthropy plays a really poor role because philanthropy should do what you just said is actually philanthropy should be helping us with innovation. It should be helping us with capacity building. It should be helping us try new ideas and helping create capacity with CDFIs or create new competencies or new capabilities. Like there, philanthropy plays a really good role. When philanthropy comes to help economic development, because economic development is not investing in the infrastructure, et cetera, then what ends up happening is philanthropy, when, when philanthropy tries to drive ROI, that's when the problem happens because you're trying to make it efficient and then you lose what you're trying to do in the process, right? So, uh, you know, talking to Pam Lewis, uh, she was a mentor of mine and she still is a mentor of mine. She would say philanthropy needs to get out of economic development. And, and that's because it is trying to plug the gap, but the incentive, think about it, economic development, their incentive is to create lots and lots of jobs, so there's lots and lots of taxes, that can be invested into better roads, better housing, uh, lower crime, helping uh, with childcare, helping with healthcare, et cetera. So economic development is an incentive for an efficient process. But when economic development breaks down, then you have philanthropy stepping in to do the work of economic development. And then they, then there is this idea of having to create efficiency and having philanthropy has to do a lot of heavy lifting that economic development should be doing. And then Philanthropy, what's really good at, like you said, philanthropy is really good at piloting new things, you know, getting a fund to go try out a new idea and then bring the data back to economic development and say, hey, we've tried this. This works really well. Why don't you sustain this long term? And and so, yes, <laughs> so that's, you know, but I'm totally with you that the capacity, in fact, one of our studies we did in Detroit was to measure all of this, the service providers, what we call the BSOs, the business support organizations, uh, through a study that was funded by the Kresge Foundation and the Wilson Foundation, uh, mainly to understand the capacity, capability, and competency of all of the technical assistance and capital access providers in, the, in Wayne County. And we had some fascinating results 
so that philanthropy could go back and create capacity and invest in infrastructure and do all those things that you just mentioned in terms of the role of philanthropy. Uh, when you when you look at the the DZ network, what does the future look like? Like, you know, what are some big programs? I know I, I want you to touch on the Community Navigator program as well, uh, but to wrap the philanthropy conversation, what are some, you know, ideas that you have in how JP Morgan Chase and others are going to support you? You know, it's, it's so interesting when you think about, uh, again, the role of philanthropy. I want to go back to 2019 for us. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase, along with the Communities Foundation of Texas, um, as well as the Better Together Fund, um, invested in or, or, or supported the, the, the research to really assess our small business landscape, to figure out where our opportunities are, where our strengths. And, and in that research, we found that resources, you know, so the resources that entrepreneurs need, which are the same across, no matter what type of business they're starting, um, are inequitably distributed here in Dallas and the accessibility of those resources in that is inequitable. And so, you know, as you think about a great example, right, of someone investing in the research to take the census data, to go out and do the stakeholder convenings, to do the focus groups, to develop the qualitative data, to put that together in a way that now I, as an ecosystem practitioner and a BSO practitioner, can use that to have a conversation with the rest of our community, whether it be those in economic development or philanthropy, to really speak to you know, what are, what are those gaps? And it's based on data and it's based on, um, again, speaking to the folks in the community. So I think that has been huge for us. Um, it has really guided the conversation. It's so funny. We launched, formally launched our ecosystem building collaborative, uh, again, called Build uh, pre-pandemic. So at the beginning of the year in 2020, and we, we came into this work with a focus on really three primary groups, entrepreneurs of color, women founders, and then those located in, with small businesses in Southern Dallas. And then, of course, we noticed in the summer of 2020, that became everybody's focus. But, but you know, we were ahead of the game um, to a certain degree. And the reason we were, were able to be is because of that investment into ecosystem building, which at the time was still something very new. And so when we think about where we're focusing our energy um, in this year and the next, it is really figuring out how to do these collaborative efforts in a way to address some of the systemic uh, disparities and 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 gaps in our ecosystem, right? One of the things that we've learned is we've been, for almost two years now, we've been sitting at the table, convening on a monthly basis, thinking about the gaps that we learned about in that report, and really working through a bunch of strategies that we can implement together that we could not do independently within our own organizations, right? Just because of capacity constraints. Most of us are nonprofit organizations. So again, that comes with its own um, own barriers as it relates to capacity. But where we really want to focus our efforts going forward is initiatives like Community Navigator Dallas. We're really excited about that project. Um, we are part of the U.S. Small Business Administration's pilot effort um, to really take something uh, that's drawn directly from the ecosystem building model of taking this hub and spoke network type infrastructure to really extend the capacity and focus in targeted underserved communities. And so our goal is to take that program um, really be a good steward of those resources and bringing our partners together to go into communities, right? Instead of them coming to us, um, going into those communities to meet with those unique demographics to really figure out, hey, how do we un better understand what your business needs are and get you connected to the right resource? One of the most consistent gaps that many ecosystems face is a lack of connectivity, right? Like if, if I meet a small business owner and I find out that it's not really a technical assistance issue for them, it's really about getting in front of more customers. It's a market issue. Am I going to hand them off to the next right partner, right? And is there a way to track that? Is there a way to make sure that that's happening? And so 
Um, initiatives like that are going to be really important to us going into this year and the next is really just thinking about how do we do more together. I am fascinated to, uh, to hear about the success of the Community Navigator pilot because that was one thing that we highlighted very early on, that the trusted connector on the ground. You had all of these resources like PPP that would come all the way down to the city level, but would never make it to the underrepresented entrepreneurs because there was lack of trust in the system. They thought that they were going to get more debt when a lot of the time those debt were, were forgiven. And I think we need things like the Community Navigator Program to highlight the lack of investments in the front lines of economic development. In terms of your own hub and spoke model, when you look at the organizations that are your spokes, are they working with underrepresented communities, especially, you know, like uh, people of color, women and other marginalized communities? Because for me, like that was the one place where the money never made it. And the poor became poorer through the pandemic and the rich became richer. That's a great question. And I think um, the application process for the uh, Community Navigator Program was uh, was uh, was challenging, but not in a bad way, challenging in a way where you really had to think conceptually of like, how were you going to reach the communities and your geographic focus? One of the things that we had in as an advantage is that if, if you recall, I said in 2019, we started doing the research and the analysis to understand our gaps in our ecosystem, right? And we started formally collaborating in early 2020. And so we knew who was doing what, right? We knew we had a women's business center. We knew we had a veteran women's enterprise center, right? We knew we had these, these uh, CDFI organizations in our community that were going into specific parts of the city doing the work. And so for us, it wasn't a matter if we had those organizations. We, we had already knew we had them and we knew they were doing the work. Um, it was more so how do we do it in a more coordinated and targeted way? which is what the SBA is allowing us to do. It's really as if, I love that they're calling it a, a pilot because it's given us an opportunity to really isolate this project from the other work that we're doing and to really be able to examine it in a way where we're going to be able, like, you know, this is very practical, but it's something that we've done is we, we designed an outreach form where we really wanted to understand who was wanting to connect with us and get access to resources, but where where's their business currently? You know, we really want to be able to provide people in an assessment and a quick a quick way and get them connected to the right partner. And we wanted to take that assessment to communities, right? We didn't just want to say, you know, go to the website and fill this out. We wanted to figure out how do we plug this into different places to get folks connected. And then on the back end, take out some of that decision-making, right? Where it's like, okay, we're looking at, you have these pieces, but you don't have this. This is the organization that you should start with. And so we're, we're hoping that we're making things a little bit easier for the small business owner. But for us, it was never a matter of do we have the players that are going in the community because we were already kind of doing the work. Um, and I think that's why folks are kind of excited about the Community Navigator Program, because it's building on this ecosystem building tradition that was already being done. And I think some folks have you know, referred to it as one of the first federal investments in ecosystem building at a national level. So that's pretty exciting. Absolutely. It's, and I love that it's a pilot because they can take the lessons learned and from a hundred million dollar investment, they can make it a billion dollar investment because the data is there to prove the outreach that they couldn't have gotten otherwise. No matter what other programs they did, in spite of how much they invested in PPP and IDLE and all these other programs. So I'm excited to hear you know, the outcome of that. Uh, I want to close by asking you just a couple of questions. One, when you look at ecosystem building and, you know, you've come from outside in 
Uh, and I've seen a couple others also come from the outside in and have been very, very successful. Uh, what do you think, you know, are some of the qualities that you've brought into ecosystem building that no matter who it is can, can learn from and implement? Because we have, a, we have a lot of practitioners of ecosystem building who listen to this podcast. I think um, just naturally, again, you know, when you think about my why, it's all about economic opportunity. Um, what I think what drives you to this work is really important um, in terms of seeing this as a wealth creation tool. Um, my mindset around understanding that we all don't have the same accessibility to the tools and resources, right, has definitely made this a very seamless transition. I think the second thing that I would highlight is to me to be an ecosystem builder, whether it's in this institutional capacity with the DEC network or even as an individual, you have to have a heart of service. Um, you know, you know, typically in the nonprofit realm, no matter what pocket it, it's in, whether it's in economic centric organizations or organizations that are dealing with things like health, it can be competitive. And so I think having the right mindset around service and really driving a, a cooperative culture is really important to it. Um, the ecosystem building uh, mindset, in, in my opinion. And I think that has helped me uh, transition into the work. And then I think the third element, and this should always be the case, I think anytime you're doing anything where it's um, addressing some of the safety nets in your society, is really putting the individual that you want to serve at the center of the design, right? So when we think about um, the conversation we just had, it's really about removing friction for small business owners, right? So if we're thinking about them at every step of the phase and creating solutions with them and not for them, I think, you know, those are to me the three big things that have made this transition, uh, you know, somewhat, uh, you know, easier than, than it could have been. I love what you just mentioned because uh, we uh, at Economic Impact Catalyst are such a mission-driven company. And our mission is to use entrepreneurship for wealth creation. And when you have a mission, you don't need time clocks. You don't need timesheets. You don't need, I actually don't know where any of my employees are right now or what they're doing. We're around the country. And it's because of that mission. And when you have a sense of purpose and you put your client, or in this case, your small business at the center of it, you really don't have to worry about, you know, uh, whether the person's going to show up to work because you know that your work is critical in helping somebody. And that can be very powerful. Uh, so absolutely, I think that's really well said. Uh, one other question before we close out. So if people want to follow your work, they want to hear about how your programs are going, how can they follow you? I know uh, typically it's LinkedIn, but you know how can uh, practitioners who are listening to this podcast and want to hear more about either your work with JP Morgan Chase or your work with the Community Navigator program or with your Build program, how can they uh, reach back out to uh, learn from you? Yeah, number one, uh, LinkedIn is my primary platform. I'm sure, David, you, you see that's kind of where I engage. So please feel free to reach out and connect with me on, on LinkedIn at Demetra Brown. So it's just my uh, first and last name. But then encourage you also to follow the DEC network on all social platforms. Again, we're the DEC network on LinkedIn, Instagram, as well as Facebook. So um, excited. And if you're local, I would love for you to engage with us on the ground. We are, you know, beginning to convene people in person again at a little bit more of a a more frequent rate. And we'd love to to meet folks here in the ecosystem that are looking to get plugged in and connected. Awesome. Well, Demetra Brown, it was such a pleasure talking to you today. I'm hoping to bring you back in a year or so after the Community Navigator program is in full swing to ask you about the lessons learned, uh, because that's going to be so fascinating. You know, boots on the ground. What are entrepreneurs telling you? What are the challenges? So uh, thank you for coming on the show today. And we'd love to have you back. Awesome. Thanks for having me, David.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is produced by Jackie Dietrich and edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.